Hey folks. Hey. So I had a hmm. I had a vasectomy. Yup. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new Sore. Sore. Yeah. Feeling a little sore. Tell them, Nina. You gotta tell them. It's a wild thing to put your body through. I mean, that's a real commitment to birth control. In a span of 15 minutes, I felt like a hero. I felt like a victim. I felt like a completely sterile man. Emptied of my ability to procreate Do you know what it is? I feel like it's impossible to discuss a vasectomy without making a lot of jokes. I tried to reach out to some friends. Hey, have you had it? Have you thought about it? I'm very inquisitive. I will ask a lot of people for TMI. I only want TMI. Nobody could ever say to me, is this TMI? It's never TMI. It's never too much information. I want all the information. And when I ask a lot of my friends, they go, yeah, I'm planning on getting it. Maybe one day. I don't know. And I go, what's your method? What are you doing? And for a lot of people, it's just, you know, she's on the pill. Well, she's handling birth control by taking a pill every single day of her life. Whoever she is, I'm talking about the woman. So there's a little sexism behind birth control where many men just assume it's on them. Not getting pregnant? Yeah, it's on them. The idea of the pill. I don't even have to tell you which pill. That's how famous the pill is, which has regulated the population on planet Earth for a long time. But there is no male pill. I've read a few articles that there could be one day, but there's no male pill. It's for women to take. And a lot of us don't know much about it. So my wife enlightened me. You realize this changes hormones. This creates disorders, can cause your mood to bounce around can cause depression, can cause anxiety, can cause sleeplessness. I mean, the pill, right? The magic pill. And there's also some positives. It's good for your skin. It regulates periods. So I know the positives. But when I heard about the negatives, then I got to say, okay, okay, okay. You brought a couple of daughters into the world. I'll do my part. We're done. Two and done. Two kids, I'm done. Officially, I don't even have to Google how many women throughout the USA are on the pill right now. I don't even know if they keep those stats, but it's more than the amount of fellas that have gotten snipped. Ooh, I don't even like saying that. I'm still in that delicate state where I don't want to say that word. Snipped? I'll just say vasectomy, which is also a gross word, isn't it? Vasectomy? We need a much cooler word. But basically, sperm can't go where it typically wants to go, and that's how I'm going to live out my days. For us men, we spend our lives protecting that region, and then for 15 minutes, we just lay back and get dissected like frogs in a 7th grade science class. I'll explain it real quick. A call to Kaiser to get the procedure, to get the operation, doesn't just turn into, oh yeah, the appointment's on Friday. You have to do a whole consent form. You have to watch a video. 
and the video makes you a little queasy, but you're like, I got this. I got this. I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to be a man. I'm stepping up. I'm stepping up to the plate. Then once you sign three consent forms, they call you and you do a little interview. They tell you all the steps. It's almost like they want to talk you out of it. They don't want it to be an impulsive decision. And then you sign another form and then you officially get an appointment. If you can, it's actually tough to get an appointment. So I made this decision in September and they said Veterans Day, 9 a.m. So this past Friday, I finally went in and my wife asked me a few times, you nervous? I said, nah. She said, you nervous? You a little nervous? I said, nah. But two minutes before the operation, I felt the kind of debilitating nervousness that'll cause a man to crumble. And I asked the nurse, I was just so fragile. Does this hurt? And she's like, yeah. And she actually said, on the left one, a little bit more than the right one. And then she left the room. I said, okay, left bull, more intense pain. Then your right bull. I got you. And then the doc comes in and he once again wants me to state my name. What's my birthday? Make sure we're doing this on the right person. Not an imposter. Yes, it's the Josh Rosenberg for the 930. Make me sterile forever appointment. And then he's quick. He's got all of his tools on a tray. What a weird job. This urologist who just does that every day does thousands. This guy does thousands. I'm nothing special. One of the most significant moments of my life is just another day at work for this guy. And I asked him, is this going to hurt? And he said, yeah. I don't know why this has a painless reputation. At least a few people have told me, that's eh, nothing. You'll be fine. It's nothing. Maybe a day or two. It's nothing. But he was like, no. This does hurt. Lean back. So I lean back and he tapes me and he positions me and he tells me don't reach down and don't really look down and let me do my thing. And then he says, this is gonna be a little poke right here, a little tug right here. You're gonna feel a little bit of a pinch right here. And he's using a lot of words that you don't want to hear about what's happening down there. This is gonna be a little tug. No, thanks. Give me a little pinch. No, thanks. Right here, a little poke. Hmm. No, thanks. And they said, this is going to be a little burn and feel. I said, no, thanks. And then he's putting in the anesthetic, trying to numb everything. But as he's getting underway, the truth is, I was feeling too much. And I was moaning, groaning. All of a sudden, I'm in labor sounds. Where's my epidural? And he was surprised. The urologist looked up and he's like, you're not okay right now? You're feeling this? And I said, I'm feeling this. And he said, oh, I guess you're one of the more sensitive patients. I'm going to have to add some anesthetic. I said, yeah, yeah. Add a lot of that. Add a lot of that. Then the slice and dice, the cut, the mince, the puree, whatever he did down there, the cauterize. Now there's some smoke. Then he bandages me up and says goodbye. I'm not kidding. It's that simple. There's no room to sit in for 15 minutes. Like when you get your COVID vaccine, they want you to sit down for 15 minutes. No, when you get a vasectomy, it's just goodbye. And I was like, really? My wife dropped me off. I don't have a ride home. He's like, you didn't have to do that. It's like, for some reason I read that. And that's the problem. I Googled so much. I've never Googled a topic more than vasectomy. All of my fearful thoughts and questions, just reading anybody's message board doctor out of San Antonio. Here's his to-dos and not to-dos. Fella on Reddit from Baltimore is telling us how it's going to be. Some clinic in Missouri is telling me what to avoid. I'm just reading a mixed bag of advice. 
But this guy's like, no, you could have driven home. So I had to call an Uber, took an Uber back home, wondering what just happened? Why is it okay for me to go home? I need bed rest. I should have been entirely out. They should have fully sedated me. And then ice, ice, baby, Advil, acetaminophen, naps, can't pick up the baby, can't be helpful. You basically just watch life. You don't participate in life. For about four days, you just say things like, oh, thank you so much. Now, I'm not, I'm not able to do that, but thank you. Ooh, 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 no, too close. When people get too close, you, no, 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 no. I just need to create my bubble. Just pretend there's a shield around me. Don't even look at me in the eyes. I'm that fragile right now. And even as I say this, I'm not okay. I'm not okay physically. Emotionally, I think I'm bouncing back. I'm not kidding. I was traumatized because I kept picturing what was happening. I was picturing the vasectomy for like 48 hours afterwards. I couldn't stop picturing his method of slicing and cutting open and what he saw. What did he see? How gross is that? What did he see? He sliced that pouch open? I'd faint. I'd faint if I saw what that man saw at Kaiser Permanente on 11-11-22 at 9.40 a.m. And you know something? I still don't know that many people that have done this. My brother-in-law, Sella, my good buddy, Mitch, who I grew up with. I know he got a vasectomy, so I kept texting with him. And then what? And then when do I feel better? And then when do I bounce back? And then when can I pick up the baby? And then when can I go on a run? And then what about this? Does it hurt when you do that? And he's just going back and forth. And then he actually called me. My friend Mitch called me because he was like, you know, enough texting, enough texting. But I couldn't pick up his call, so he left a voicemail. And the voicemail he left was such a legendary voicemail that I asked him today, could I play that on episode 200? Do you mind if I play your voicemail? He's like, fine, go for it. So here's Mitch's story of the old snip. Hello, Josh Rosenberg, and more specifically, Josh Rosenberg, Severed Fat Zephyr. I hope you're feeling well. just thought I'd give you a call, and I never shared with you a funny story from my, uh, my time. I, you know, they gave me a little Ativan beforehand, which was helpful to calm down. Hello, Josh Rosenberg, and more specifically, Josh Rosenberg, Severed Fat Zephyr. I hope you're feeling well. Just thought I'd give you a call, and I never shared with you a funny story from my, uh, my time. You know, they gave me a little Ativan beforehand, which was helpful to calm down and relax, and then they said, hey, do you mind if, uh, Resident comes and observes, may participate in the procedure, and I said, sure, sure, that sounds okay. I'm a, I'm a man of health education. And then they said, okay, great. Hey, how about a uh, med student, too? And I said, yeah, you betcha, no problem. So there I am, taped up to my stomach, and there's the doctor, a medical resident, and a 22-year-old female med student, all just hanging out, taking their turns, making cuts, making stitches. Doc said, hey, would you mind if the best resident does a few stitches? And I said, no, that's okay. And he said, hey, do you mind if the med student, you know, just pokes around and feels it all a little bit? I said, no, that's okay. Then when the medical resident was doing his stitch, I had to make a joke at the time and said, wait, 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 don't mess up. I might not be able to have kids. And he did not like that joke. He was a little thrown off, and he may have slipped a little. So I may have had some soreness based off of that little flipping with his stitch. 
But uh, when else can you make a joke about some cutting your balls? Hope you're doing better, buddy. Talk to you later. Bye. They gave him Ativan? Sorry. I heard that message a couple times. I was laughing, but this past time I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Why didn't they give me Ativan? Why didn't they knock me out? That's it. Of all the people I know, me and Mitch and my brother-in-law. Why isn't it a longer list? Is it because the fellas are fearful? Or is it because of sexism? Yeah, birth control is just kind of a sexist idea for the most part. Yeah, she will keep us from getting pregnant. Even the whole idea of legislating abortion is sexist, right? I mean, with all these male lawmakers in a male-dominated Congress and way more male politicians than female politicians, they can clearly drop a mandate on something they'll never experience. If men were the ones that carried the babies, there'd be no talk about legalizing abortions at any phase, at any stage of a pregnancy. If men, let's just say, men carried babies, I think it'd be a much different discussion. And if you want to get real specific, if you're wondering, well, how would the C-section? Of course. Well, the baby eventually, C-section. They're all C-sections. I don't have a body part picked out for where the baby would come out of. So C-section. If men were the ones getting pregnant, it is my firm belief, looking back, Throughout history, lots of history of gender inequality and sexism, that we wouldn't even be having this pro-life, pro-choice debate in 2022. It would all be put to rest. It'd be totally settled. If men were the ones getting pregnant, it'd be like, yeah, abortion's fine. Totally fine. But that's a weird if. And a supremely tough hypothetical to transition out of. But I'll try. Oh, yes, I'll try. Because it's episode 200. It's a special one. It's a milestone, I guess. You could do the math right now. If most of these are about 30 minutes, and I've done 200, that's 6,000 minutes of just talking and talking and talking for the last four and a half years, compiling 6,000 minutes. I'll do your math. That's over four days. If you listen to all of them in a row, which I know you're about to do, that'll be four days of your lives. Or you've already been on the journey with me. So thanks. And the journey doesn't stop. It's a microcosm for our lives. It doesn't stop. There's no destination. There's no final episode. There's no championship of podcasts. You won it. You won the podcast title. You get to stop. I don't know when I get to stop. I don't know what's driving me. I just know that we can't idealize that there's something in our futures that's just going to make us feel totally satisfied. Yet, we all idealize. Jonah Hill currently has a documentary on Netflix called Stutz. It's a really cool idea. He's telling the story of his psychiatrist, his therapist that he's been seeing for years. And this guy's brilliant. He's also battling Parkinson's. So it's a really sentimental, artsy documentary. But it's also very simple. I think it might even be dull for some people. It's just Jonah Hill, unlike we've ever seen him. Totally vulnerable, totally honest, and almost delivering free therapy through Netflix. Just asking his psychiatrist, can I film us? And it is a movie, but it also feels raw. And here's a guy that's had a really successful acting career. Most people I know are Jonah Hill fans. At least you've seen a few movies, I imagine, with Jonah Hill that you've liked. Superbad, Wolf of Wall Street, his little part in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, trying to buy those skates at the eBay store. Great scene, stealing scenes. Knocked up, stealing scenes. 
But this is Jonah Hill basically admitting, I've been sad. I've been depressed. I thought maybe an Academy Award or having this successful career would cure everything, but it doesn't. And when you see someone with that kind of status admitting, yeah, I didn't find that everything was okay once I reached the goal, because a lot of us have planted the goal. Oh, if I can only get that job or have a career in that field or marry that person or take a vacation to that country, whatever you're planting ahead of yourself as the ultimate source of happiness will not sustain satisfaction. I mean, it might make you happy momentarily, but that's what Stutz, Phil Stutz is this incredible guy in the documentary teaching Jonah life's about uncertainty and pain and constant work. And there really isn't anything you could dangle in front of yourself that creates this lifelong happiness, this elixir that doesn't exist. But we are all wired to chase it, aren't we? We're all chasing that. Like, I just want to be happy. Most people will say that. I just want to be happy. Whereas Stutz, I love his name, would say, no, that's not the goal. The goal is to learn how to roll with the punches, knowing that happiness is not a consistent state of mind. So when it's fleeting, when it dissipates, not unraveling entirely, then you get to live an easier life or at least a more worthwhile, fulfilled life. It goes against our natural way of thinking. Most people are chasing happiness, which almost might be the opposite of how we obtain happiness, of how we just have that calm state of mind. All of this is easier said than done. I could watch a whole hour and a half documentary with brilliant lessons from Phil Stutz and write everything down, and I know by next week, I'll just get carried away and consumed with some shitty thought that'll put me in a bad mood. Then in retrospect, I'll go, damn, I should have utilized my tools from that Stutz documentary. But there are tools. He talks about the life force, the three things in our life force. Number one, physical. Take care of your body, your mind, with the diet, fitness, things that we are in power. There's a lot of things that we're powerless to, but we're in power of how much exercise we get and what we eat, what we put into our bodies. And then he said our relationships with others and then relationship with self. And what that means is there's a subconscious. And how do you mirror it? How do you know that voice inside? He said journaling, write down, just write down. And if you get in that flow of writing, not with any intention, not with any theme, but just start writing. Let that voice out and then read it. That mirrors the subconscious and that there's also someone i'm trying to remember all this because it felt so profound there's also the shadow and that's that person in us that we don't like that we're ashamed of we've all done some shameful shit or regrettable stuff but in order to move past that and not let it plague us continually you got to talk to it so stutz tells jonah hill close your eyes now talk to that person inside of you that you're ashamed of those moments of shame talk to it Don't stifle it. Don't bottle it up. Don't try to turn away from it. Face it. Be vulnerable. Be honest. And a lot of us are not. A lot of us put on the mask when you greet society. You put on the mask. Makes it easier to get through a day. Being vulnerable, that's not easy. That hurts. That stings. Letting people know your mistakes, your flaws, your areas to improve. We don't flaunt that. No one clicks like on that stuff. I found all of it to be so relatable because to be vulnerable would kind of mean to admit you need therapy. I needed it. It's the only way I'm happily married. And that comes up if you find the right therapist. They're not all the right therapists, just like any profession. There's some bad ones out there. But if you find the right one, 
You start to gain clarity. You look at your behavioral patterns and you go, oh, that's why that is that way. And wait, why am I that way from that? So I met a person named Shani and didn't immediately fall in love. And that felt weird and that felt odd and that felt gross. And I go, why? Why don't I fall in love? I see the movies. I see my group of friends. I see people fall in love. Why don't I? Perhaps I've never fallen in love. And I started to learn about relationship anxiety. It's different than other types of anxiety. And my therapist, who I was seeing every Tuesday at 2 p.m., named Daniel Linder, that's his name, I'll drop his name right now, was great. And he almost had that New York kind of bravado that Phil Stutz has, where he's just like, give me that wisdom. Give me that wisdom. Let it out of your head. That's what Stutz says, too. I don't just sit there listening to the clients. I give them something. I give them tools. I give them hope. So they leave my office with a little bit of hope. That was me on the couch. I was like, say something. I just poured my heart out. Say something smart that's going to help. And he basically said, Josh, you have anxiety about this idea of a lifelong commitment because you're idealizing that it should be happy. It should always be happy. A true love story, but no marriage is. So if that's your view of what it's going to be, you're going to suffer. And you're suffering right now because you're worried about not being happy. When really you found the puzzle piece that fits properly with you. So stay with me in these sessions and keep swiping the old visa, if you know what I mean. But stay with me in these sessions and learn how to cope. That's when I learned how to meditate. So when I learned how to make connections to the earliest memories I had of what family looked like, wasn't good. Fighting in my house, lots of it, loud. Friends didn't know because you emerge, you go play ball at the park, you go kick it, you go party with friends you're not talking about. There's yelling in my house and I'm scared of this. And I don't like that negative energy in my house. No, young people aren't really talking like that. It wasn't vulnerable. But 100% of the people that are vulnerable just tell someone about the ugliness in their past. Maybe something that has just bothered them for so long. In that moment, you feel better. It's just that simple. In that moment, you feel better. You go, shit, I've never told anyone that. Why do I feel better? It's a literal weight that comes off. And you'll learn that's actually what unites all of us. Our flaws. A lot of us come from families that weren't perfect. Most, right? And there's dysfunction bouncing up and down the halls of most American families. It's just a lot of personalities to shove into these homes to become the earliest memories that shape you forever. Watch Stutz on Netflix. Trust me, watch Stutz and have a pen. Part of Stutz' approach is his own penmanship. And because he has Parkinson's, his hand shakes, but you stay with every stroke as he's diagramming the tools on how to live a healthier life on how to live a calmer life. Most of us are not living a calm life. Most of us are just in the rat race, feeling stressed, feeling busy, having to try to carve out time for meditation and fitness and nice things like little vacations, but it becomes stressful to even carve out that time. We're a nation of workaholics. We act like we just got to stay so connected to things that really, in retrospect, are probably not worth staying so connected to. Checking my email all throughout the night, Checking texts all throughout the night when the world is actually unfolding in front of you and all of us are on our screens. Hey, don't go down that road. You go down that road too much. The old, is tech good? The advancement of tech or is tech bad? It's a fun debate. It's a fun discussion. I'll tell you where tech is weird. And this is true. About five nights ago, I was driving down Miller Creek Road, which is off of Lucas Valley Road. This is in Marinwood, a real rugged ghetto, folks. 
and there was a car in front of me. I was in a rushed mood. I was in a rushed mood. I remember I was picking up food, wanting to get back to the family, and I was feeling rushed. And this car in front of me was going like 15 miles per hour. And I felt myself getting tense and pissed. And I was like, no, 15 miles per hour. And it was pitch black. There's not a lot of street lamps in this area. It was pitch black, one car in front of me, but I couldn't swerve in either direction to get around. I just had to be patient. But as we finally emerged at a stop sign, I got ahead. And this is like in front of the tennis courts in Marinwood Park. I kind of got ahead just to get a glimpse. There was, and I'm not making this up, nobody driving the car. This was a self-driving car. It became a horror movie, an absolute fucking horror movie. I felt like nobody else was in the world, just me in the self-driving car. And then I look into this field. There's like a field in front of the tennis courts in Marinwood Park. And I see these two red lights. Is this Black Mirror? Is this the Twilight Zone? Am I dreaming? There's these two red lights. And I think it was from someone with a remote who was controlling the car. Because that car then just did a weird left turn and stayed parked right in the street. And I kept going forward like, nope, uh uh-uh, nope. That didn't just happen. But I got a glimpse into an empty car and two red lights floating in the field by the tennis courts. Does that give you the chills? Just like the vasectomy story, do you kind of feel a little weird? Makes you a little queasy, like, oh God, what was it? I don't want a world of self-driving cars. Even though I know it could be good for so many reasons, I don't don't want it. I just, I, I, I want to be like Mike. Like Mike. If I could be like Mike, that's been in my head for a while. I'm going to find that on YouTube. I was singing it when I was cooking tonight, and my wife chimed in at the perfect time. We were doing the best duet of only people who remember those Gatorade ads can sing perfectly. If you were a young kid developing at this time where Jordan and the Bulls were on top of the world and he was on every ad from Nike to ballpark hot dogs to batteries to Jordan's cologne, movies, TV shows, restaurants, McDonald's. I mean, Jordan was just bigger than any celebrity, but the Gatorade ad? Sometimes I dream that he And my wife was doing all those high-pitched runs. I like Mike. I want to be, I want to be like Mike. It was just the greatest ad ever. It was so good it stays in my head. That ad's probably from what? 92, 93 and it stays in my head? And you know what's weird? I still want to be like him. Wherever he is. Playing golf. Smoking a cigar. Having some fine cognac. They should do a follow-up to be like Mike. Do we still? Do we still want to be like him? Kind of. Speaking of cooking, I realize 
I think I was talking about cooking because I was singing and cooking. You're like, cooking? I realized my wife is too nice when I cook a terrible meal. She never says it tastes bad. I'd say one out of five, maybe one out of seven meals that I serve the fam is just awful. Just dog shit on a table. You know, you got to take some chances, some culinary chances. And I watch her closely when I know the chicken's dry. And I know because we used such healthy tortillas, they don't really taste like tortillas. And when she's doing the scrape method, we all know the scrape method. You make it look like you ate more on your plate by just kind of pushing things to the side a little bit. When I know the steak is tough or the soup is tasteless, she'll never say, oh, that's terrible. Or this tastes bad. She always has a big speech. She sits back and goes, it's me. It's me. I'm just coming off a cold. I'm stressed about some things at work. When I was a kid, we used to have way too much cauliflower. She has the weirdest excuses. And it's so nice because she's protecting me. She's protecting the chef's ego. She doesn't have to. But her speeches get real weird. I serve an awful meal. I know it's awful. I don't apologize. I just watch her. I watch her eyes glaze over, look around the room, and then sit back, take a breath, and go, it's not you. Okay, you tried your hardest. It's when I was at camp, when I was 12 years old, in the dining hall. They did a shrimp scampi like this, and the shrimp was bouncy. Your food is good. It's just, it's traumatic, and those memories are coming back to the surface. Or I attempt taco night, mess it all up. And she says, you know, just had a coworker a couple of months ago do tamales. So I'm not really feeling it tonight. I go, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. She goes, no, 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 no. It's not you. It's not you. I go, that's a nice person protecting me. It's not you and your struggles in the kitchen. It's not you. It's me. It's me. I try lamb meatballs, Israeli salad, some hummus. She takes a bite. Ugh. You know, I just watched my big fat Greek wedding, so I've kind of had my share of Mediterranean cuisine just looking at it, so I think I'm going to bow out of this and order a pizza. But that's not you. That's me. That's my world. Are we noticing a real movement toward leisure wear in life? I was watching that Willie Mays documentary on HBO, which is essential viewing for a baseball fan or a Bay Area sports fan. And you saw people wearing suits to baseball games. Suits and ties. And we all know people used to wear suits and ties and dress up real formal to go on an airplane, to take a flight. You would dress up for a flight. Now what do you see? People going to the airport in pajamas, sweats, hoodies and sweatpants. Hoodies and sweats going to a baseball game. You get to wear your denim shorts, your jean shorts, your jorts and your sandals. And whatever you, you wouldn't dream of wearing a tie to a Giants game. I went into Kohl's yesterday. The whole place is just hoodies and sweatpants. Students, pajama pants, hoodies, teachers. I even saw a teacher teaching in shorts a couple years ago. Teaching in shorts. Teachers can't wear shorts or sweats. But guess what? Yes, they can. Fetterman. John Fetterman who just defeated Dr. Oz for the Senate seat in Pennsylvania. That dude's all Ben Davis shorts, long shorts, hooded sweatshirts. He's not going to play the game. He's not interested in your suits and ties. I think that's kind of okay. 
Right? I don't know. I'm trying to be on board with like, yeah, we should just be able to be comfortable. But there's a part of me that's against all of it. I like a little formality when it comes to fashion. I think too relaxed looks too lazy. I don't know. Maybe this happened to us during the pandemic. We were all just zooming in our sweats. I'm not saying people should be wearing suits and ties to the airport, although that'd be kind of cool. But NBA coaches aren't even wearing suits anymore. Have you noticed that? NBA coaches are now just wearing like windbreaker tops. I'm putting my foot down. All right, folks. And I know that's why you tuned into this podcast to hear my thoughts on leisure wear, but no more wear what you want when you want. All right. I said it. I said it as I go to Amazon and try to buy a new hoodie every week. I could not imagine having a job, a Monday through Friday job, where I put a suit and tie on. That would feel like a bar mitzvah every day, like a wedding every day. It would just feel like when we arrive at work, like we should talk about our clothes. Could you imagine? Does anyone who listens to this actually wear a suit and tie every day, Monday through Friday, where you come home, you loosen your tie, and you put all of that back on a hanger? Ugh. That's such a production. You know what else was a big production? Oh, the king of the transitions tonight. That Chappelle monologue. When Lauren Michaels wants to make a splash, he just calls Dave. And Dave's like, mm, all right. Yeah, more people are into this monologue, this Saturday Night Live monologue, than all of the speeches combined throughout the campaign trail of the recent elections. And Dave Chappelle is not a politician. He's not really an activist. This is stand-up comedy. It's its own medium of entertainment. This is stand-up comedy. So you could say, he's a social commentator. Or he's a voice of reason. He's a modern-day philosopher. You could give him all those labels. But the guy is a stand-up comedian. But the way he gets analyzed after a set that it's borderline hate speech. I tend to stand up for comedians. I tend to stand up for free speech when it comes to stand-up comedians. I mean, let's be honest, most stand-up comedians are liberal. But I thought the Chappelle monologue was really good. And I had a lot of people ask me. Some of my non-Jewish friends reached out to me. They go, was that okay? I'm like, yeah. I know he's offended plenty of people. I know the head of the ADL tweeted out that it was problematic, damaging, perpetuating anti-Semitism and these really intense reactions from a lot of groups. A Dave Chappelle's Saturday Night Live monologue pushed the envelope too far. It was too scathing. Where all I thought was, am I laughing? And I think I was. I looked at my wife. She was laughing. I go, okay, we're laughing right now. Hey, he makes you think. I know he's not just like every other comic out there. He's a legend. Legends rarely miss. Legends make you talk. And think about the greatest, from Lenny Bruce to George Carlin, Chris Rock. They talk about things that matter. They make you rethink a lot of things. The way George Carlin talked about religion, he offended a lot of people. The way Chris Rock talked about elements of the black community, he offended a lot of people. Lenny Bruce got arrested on stage. And now Dave Chappelle's up there in 2022. And there's still some people who are saying, you shouldn't say that. You can't say that. For a stand-up comic on Saturday Night Live to poke some fun at Kanye and Kyrie and Trump and even Jews in Hollywood. I don't want non-hateful people to be stifled. I want non-hateful people, Dave Chappelle's not anti-Semitic, to be able to make some jokes. I don't think he's leading any rallies. I don't think he's converting anyone tuning into SNL, who was indifferent about Jews, to now saying, yes, Jews do run the media. Thanks, Dave Chappelle, for turning me against that group of people. 
Things are very delicate right now. Things are so delicate. Even on this podcast, I know the things I wouldn't say. And I say a lot, but I know the things I wouldn't say. And if you're wondering, what? What's inside of your head? That would offend. I know I'm not a racist person or an anti-Semitic person. Of course I'm not. And I know I'm not a sexist person. But I do know some jokes about all of those topics. And I do know that there are some lighthearted ways to discuss things and alternative viewpoints that are just forbidden. So you got to steer clear. And I think that's fine to steer clear. You wouldn't, or I'll say I wouldn't want to offend anyone. Even if a statement ends with just kidding, but I'm just kidding. But I'm also not Chappelle and I'm not a stand-up. And I care about inclusivity. I'm just seeing a lot of the nation transition into being offended really quickly and perhaps even overreacting instead of practicing a little pragmatism. Not everything has to be so polarized. It's like when I watched Shane Gillis. Shane Gillis was the SNL cast member that was fired for making jokes about Chinese people and Lorne Michaels had to fire him. The media uproar, fire him. You just hired Bowen Yang and Shane Gillis, fire him. And I read all these articles where I was like, oh, fuck this guy, Shane Gillis. Then I watched his special and I was like, oh, he's funny. He's funny. How do you know if something's funny? It's a visceral reaction. There's only one way to judge funny. You laughing or not? That's it. Chappelle's monologue. If you weren't laughing, it wasn't funny. If you were offended, that's actually totally fine. That's the beauty of this whole country is that we have to be fine with opposing viewpoints. If we weren't, if we were indoctrinated to have a singular viewpoint, this would not be a democracy. That's the toughest catch-22 out there. That's really the toughest right there. It's to know that even when you're sickened with someone that has an opposite viewpoint or sees this world completely different than you, that's what our country is. That's the fabric. Is that it's allowed, even if it's so ugly and you know it's downright immoral. But the fact that it's allowed is kind of what makes America, America. Wow. Huh? Did we get somewhere at the end? It's what makes America, America. And I think that's it. Oh, actually, it's episode 200. I forgot. I have a new theme song. I have a new theme song for you. Every 100 episodes, I get to bust out a new theme song. So without further ado, here it is. Actually, no, that's Blossom's theme song. Hold on. Maybe the world is blind. No, 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 that's not it either. That's Punky Brewster. Hold on. Episode 200. Got a new theme song for this podcast. Here we go with Josh Rosenberg. All right, here it is. Never mind, never mind. That's Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Hold on. The real theme song. You want to hear the real deal? All right. Episode 200. Let's bust it out. Here we go. No, that's... I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight by The Cutting Crew. Let me find it. I can't find it for some reason. Oh, here it is. 
Oh, no, never mind. That's me typing fart sounds into Spotify. That's definitely not my new theme. Hold on, where is it? Where is it? No, 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 that's Tiffany, that's Tiffany. I mean, God, we love Tiffany, but that's not my theme. What's my theme moving forward? Where is it? I know Micah Julius made me a new one. Where is it? Oh, no, that can't be it. That's Millie Vanilli's hit song, Girl, You Know It's True. What about, what about, what about, what about this? Yeah, there it is. There it is. Got it. No, that's actually Aisha by ABC, another bad creation. And I'm looking at the album cover for ABC. So cute. Was I their age when I was listening to this? Coolin' at the playground, you know? Holy shit, I need that poster. Am I too old for posters in the bedroom? A, B, C, Aisha. You are the girl I want to know. What do they say? Never had. I don't know. But I do know one thing. This could be love because... Oh, it's the truth. Isn't it the truth? Isn't it, Frank? That's life. That's love. That's what all the people say. That is. That is what all the people say. All right, folks. We made it to 200. Stay with me. They're only going to get better. That's life, right? That's life. Hopefully we're ascending. Ascending together. Appreciate you tuning in. Leave a nice rating or review on iTunes and have yourself a lovely day. Because I love you in every way. He creates a rhyme and a slogan at the end. That's episode 200. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>